Hi, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And we have two quick things to ask you. First, if you haven't already, please go over to iTunes and rate and or review us. We would really appreciate it. And second, we just launched a brand new Patreon page and want you to check it out. Patreon.com slash vernacular. You can look at what we're doing and sign up to potentially support more of our future work. So if you've appreciated the podcast, we know we've appreciated sharing it with you. Please consider doing that. But at the very least, go check out the page and share it with your friends. Without further ado, welcome to Vernacular Podcast. Welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. We are here with Muriel Renault, one of our contributors, and we're here to talk about something near and dear to Muriel's heart and our heart. The last time Muriel was going to be on with us, she was scheduled to record, and even that day was excited and looking forward to the interview, as, as were we. And then Muriel went into labor with her second child, uh, first daughter, Rosemarie. Uh, and so we were really happy for Muriel, obviously disappointed we couldn't record, but uh, it was a, it was an exciting time. And Muriel, <laughs> welcome back to the show. Thanks. I mean, I have to say between labor and recording vernacular, I choose recording vernacular every time. <laughs> I think Sally feels that way too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was such a crazy day, but I'm super glad to have you on the show finally, 13 months later. <laughs> it's great to be back. Yeah, we're excited to have you on, and thanks for coming to us for this topic. Uh, for our listeners um, who don't know the backstory on this, Muriel had her daughter, as I mentioned, Rosemarie Catherine, and at about six months of age, Muriel, you can correct me if the date's wrong, Rosemarie was diagnosed with a serious genetic condition that Muriel's going to talk to us more about. But Muriel had the wonderful idea of coming on the show to talk about what it's like being the parent of a child with a significant disability and the challenges that come along with that and, and sort of just talking through her experiences in that. And we thought that was a great idea. So uh, I, with that sort of set up to this, Muriel, why don't you tell us about Rosie? Okay. Well, the, I mean, Rosie's so great. She's, she just turned one in May. So she's 13 months old now and she is hilarious. She's chatty. Um, she loves to play with her brother. She loves to play outside. Um, she's just a delight, and we love having her in our family. She also has two um, fairly serious health, I guess, problems. I'm not sure exactly what to call them. I think their conditions is maybe the best way to put it. Um, right, so actually fairly early on, from about six weeks, um, my husband John noticed a, a bow in her tibia that turned out to be, um, rather than just a bowed leg, which wouldn't be that serious, a really rare skeletal condition called congenital pseudarthrosis of the tibia, which is, we just call it CPT for short, but um, it's really rare. It only affects one in about 250,000 births, so there's not a lot of data on how to treat it, but basically... Um, the bone is corrupted and uh, it will eventually break as hers did when she was about five and a half months old and doesn't heal without surgical intervention and sometimes not even then. So right now at 13 months old, Rosie has a fractured left tibia um, and she functions in a brace with that fracture while we wait for her to get bigger. Um, her other condition that she was diagnosed with just a few months later when she was about four months old 
um, is called neurofibromatosis type 1, or NF1 is an easier abbreviation. And NF1 is um, it describes the existence of a mutation at a particular location on the 17th chromosome. And the effect of it is that it conduces to tumor growth. So um, basically there's a protein called neurofibromin that is produced as a result of this gene that prohibits overgrowth um, on nerve sheaths and people with NF1, which is, it takes the form of a many, many different mutations, but at this particular spot, um, they that protein doesn't work properly or it isn't produced at all, so they will grow tumors on their nerve sheaths. And then that condition also causes um, lots of other health risks. So people with NF1 are at greatly increased risk of learning disabilities, of hypertension, well, that's a little bit more rare, certain types of cancer, significantly increased risk. Um, all sorts of different health problems. So uh, that's what we've been dealing with since she was about four months old, just all of the fallout from both of those conditions. You just mentioned um, a bunch of different increased risks that are associated with both of these conditions. And I'm sure it's hard to imagine all the possible futures that Rosie could have, but how do you wrestle with all that uncertainty as, as her parent? Oh, um, not very well most of the time. It's, it's really, um, it's hard, especially the CPT is, is not as big of a deal because sort of the worst case scenario is amputation, right? So if her bone can't be healed through surgical intervention and we, we get to the point where we think repeated attempts are going to compromise her, quality of life more. Um, it can be effectively not cured, but the problem can be taken away. We can make it go away by just amputating her lower leg and using a prosthesis. And the state of prosthetic technology these days is such that a baloney amputation really doesn't, um, really doesn't affect your function all that much at all. She would have arguably better function with a prosthesis than she would with her leg, even if her bone does eventually heal. So that doesn't, um, it doesn't worry too, me too much anymore. I've sort of come to terms with it. The NF is a lot harder because it's so uncertain. There's not currently any clear research. There's some preliminary research um, hypothesizing that different forms of the mutation can sort of predictably be linked to more or less severe manifestations of NF1. And Rosie was diagnosed to be a genetic testing, which most people with it are not. Um, but we don't have enough information right now to have any idea how severe her case may be. So it's possible that, you know, other than the spots that she already has on her skin, she won't experience any other severe manifestations of the condition, but it's possible that she could develop lots of them. And I was telling a friend recently, it's kind of like getting a letter that your child is at an increased risk of being hit by a bus but no information about when or where. And it's not certain. It's just more likely to happen to your kid than someone else. And so then, like, go forth and live your life with the knowledge that, you know, every time you get close to a street, your child is more likely to be hit than another kid. Um, you know, so the the current, the most current research suggests that she has about a 45% chance of a cancer diagnosis by age 50. So, you know, hopefully we'll still be around when she's 50, <laughs> maybe not, but um, that's not great odds. And if she gets certain forms of cancer, um, 
including breast cancer, which women with NF1 are at a significantly increased risk of, um, the chances of her having a bad prognosis are significantly higher. So it's hard for me. I mean, I don't, I don't handle it well a lot of the time. I think um, it's hard, you know, none of us as parents, and you guys know this, we're never promised that nothing bad is going to happen to our kids. There's always that possibility, but it's just sort of walking around with this knowledge that, you know, she has these factors that make it more likely that bad things will happen to her than to a member of the general population. And it's not easy for me. It's something I struggle with really often. I want to come back to this point later, but maybe kind of shifting to more of the sort of immediate day-to-day challenges. What type of what type of social challenges have you and Rosie faced? Just I'm talking about people stigmatizing those with disabilities. I'm talking about wayward glances at Rosie's brace on the playground, etc. Sure. Well, I have to say um, it was harder when she was in a cast. So when her, her leg initially fractured back in November and it wasn't a trauma fracture, it just the, the corrupted part of her bone just got a hairline fracture through it and it was very painful for her. So they put her in a plaster cast for about 10 weeks. And when kids that age have casts on their legs, they have to go all the way up to mid thigh. So she had this huge cast from, you know, the top of her thigh all the way down over her foot. And the problem is with a kid that age, there's no chance that when they have a broken bone, it's from playing sports or climbing a tree. So, um, I would take her out in public and, you know, sometimes I even got comments like, oh, did she roll off the changing table or just other sort of, I was very sensitive to the yeah, fact Yeah, were you that, a negligent parent? Right, exactly. That's exactly how it felt to me. Like there was this sense looking at her like, well, clearly something went wrong and it couldn't possibly have been her fault. So it oh, must have so been sad. yours. It was really hard for that's me. That's terrible. And I don't think people meant it maliciously even. It was just sort of something that I was really, really aware of. And that's gotten much easier since she transitioned um, in January from that giant cast, which was terrible in lots of ways. She finally got to have a bath and she now has a brace that she wears that just covers her foot and the lower part of her left leg. And, you know, it's more visible now that it's summer and she's wearing shorts and skirts and rompers instead of pants. But um, we're actually really lucky to live in a really diverse, really inclusive city, um, which is sort of unusual for this part of the country. But we've never encountered any um, unkindness or expressed stigma, at least when it comes to having our brace or using a mobility aid. Rosie has a device called a pacer that she is able to use to allow her to move around upright. So it sort of takes the weight off of her broken left leg and she can zoom around in this it's like a walker but it it also has a seat um and we've taken her to the park and she's used her pacer and all we've ever gotten is you know kind words and smiles um the one social issue i suppose that i didn't anticipate that's really funny is when you have a kid in a wheeled device like that it's really hard for other kids to not want to push her around yeah i can see that <laughs> so we've uh i've sort of been working on a way to sort of kindly explain and there will be kids who will ask questions right. you know what's what's that or what's on her leg and um I have actually found it to be really, I, I took some tools that I learned actually from a podcast episode. Have you, do you guys listen to The Longest Shortest Time? It's a podcast about parenting. No. No. Sally, add it to your list. Yeah, I haven't heard of it. Yeah, I enjoy it a lot. Um, it's morphed, it's changed shape a lot over the years, but um, there was a good episode recently about 
raising your children to not be racist, which is, of course, something that I desire to do. And so it's a solid goal, <laughs> right? a solid parenting goal. <laughs> good, good advice. Um, but I also found the general principles helpful for dealing with a kid with a visible difference or uh, a visible disability, because the advice basically is just like, don't act as if there's something shameful about these differences, you know? So don't say, if someone says like, oh, is it, why is your why is that person's skin black? Don't say like, oh, don't ask. You know, you can just say people have all different colors of skin. Or just which... don't don't explain it in hushed tones to make it seem like it's something negative. Exactly. And so um, with Rosie, I've sort of taken that approach and just said, you know, when someone asks, oh, what's on, what's on her leg? And I just say, oh, you know, she has a special leg and she uses this brace to help keep it safe. And kids are so accepting of the things that they hear. There's never any like, oh, that's weird. Oh, that's gross response. They're just like, oh, okay, you know, and they move along and just play with her so we've actually been really grateful for that I don't know what it will be like when she gets older um you know she's not obviously at an age right now where bullying is all that common <laughs> the, you know the kids that she interacts with can barely talk I think I don't know I hope one of my goals is to set her up with the tools so that if she does encounter negative attitudes she'll be able to cope with them well but also you know to raise her and to raise her brother and to just send them out into the world in such a way that maybe they help their peers to be really accepting of of differences because Rosie does have you know visible differences now and as she gets older one of the things that neurofibromatosis is sort of commonly known for in popular culture um I don't know if you guys the term the elephant man means anything to you I really don't like that term because I think it's incredibly yes um, I've, I've seen the movie and inhumane right but the 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 sort of inspiration for that character and several other people in recent history there was a man um, whom Pope Francis embraced at a public audience who also those people both had neurofibromatosis one the same condition that Rosie I does. remember seeing those headlines actually I know exactly what you're talking about yep Obviously, those are severe manifestations. Most people with NF1 do not um, have that that severe of a, a physical um, change to their appearance, but it's possible. I mean, it's something that could happen. And actually, um, during May, which is Neurofibromatosis Awareness Month, I was I was talking on social media each day. I was sharing a fact about NF um, with just my friends and the people I interact with on those platforms to sort of spread awareness. And I mentioned that, you know, it can cause these visible changes and that working to decrease the sick stigma that's associated with, you know, disfigurement, um, which is a term that I use carefully, but um, sort of with the approval of people I know who have conditions that cause facial disfigurement. So I, it's, it's, it's fraught, but I use it at least thoughtfully. Anyway, you know, this one person just, you know, not, not meanly, but sort of thoughtlessly said, oh, don't Google this condition. Rosie's way cuter than the people you'll see if you Google image. Oh, Aww. wow. And Right? And, you know, I understood that it wasn't meant maliciously, but just the fact that that's something, a reaction that someone would have to a, a con, you know, a person who has a condition that my daughter has, and she could look like that someday. And I said that, and it was a good conversation. The person apologized and sort of understood um, why that was not a helpful thing to say. But wow. it does worry me as a mother that she, you know, in the event that she does have some degree of, you know, a visible, a distinctive appearance that comes from her enough one that people will react negatively to her. So that's one of those uncertainties that I, I worry about that we just don't know. 
in the long run, how that will play out. You mentioned her brother, your son, Gregory, and how do you, this has got to be one of the hardest jobs that you have, but how do you try to ensure that both Rosie and Gregory know that she or he is equally loved, even though Rosie obviously requires more of your attention just because she's the one who has these special conditions? Oh yeah, this is this is a big one. I mean, it's a question that we, my husband John and I, we we think about and talk about a lot. Um, and I think it's going to be a process. Um, but you know, it is it is tricky. And I have there have been these moments where I've said to myself, "Gosh, you know, my reaction to him in that moment." Actually, something happened today. Uh, earlier this evening, we were just getting dinner ready, and I was holding Rosie, and Gregory came over. Um, and started yanking on her leg. And thankfully it was her right leg because she didn't have her brace on her left leg at that moment. He was pulling really hard on it. And I, I, you know, I didn't yell, but I was, I was very quick to say, Gregory, no, you, you know, you can never, ever, ever pull on either of Rosie's legs ever because she has a special, you know, if she, because her tibia is fractured. So if he pulled on, if he yanked on her, her leg that way, it would cause her pain. And it's, you know, it's so hard because ordinarily, you know, that's not a dangerous behavior for a child to engage in. He wasn't hitting her. He wasn't trying to hurt her. Um, So I'm not, you know, it's that, that, that question for me is more of a question than an answer. It's really something I don't, I don't know. One thing that I have tried to do, and I'm going to make more of an effort to do this summer, hopefully now that I'll have the time, you know, I spent a lot of time taking Rosemary to doctor's appointments, just the two of us. And Gregory either gets to play with his cousins or, you know, he's at home with a sitter who plays with him. So it's not like he's being neglected, but there is all of this time where I say like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going off with Rosie and I'm leaving you behind. And one thing I want to make an effort to do is do the opposite, you know, and even though he doesn't need to go to the doctor or to go to physical therapy or to go to occupational therapy, just take him to the park, take him to the pool and spend time one-on-one with him and have him have that experience of having her be left behind. Because I do think that at his current age, you know, he's just a a smidge over two and a half. I think that will help. Yeah. That's a great idea. As they get older, I don't know. I mean, some of it, she, you know, she'll need surgery sometime within the next year. I think there are books. I hope there are books about this that I hope and plan to read to sort of prepare him for that experience. And um, I know hospitals have what are called child life specialists that are um, sort of their job is to help children under treatment, but also the families of children under treatment too, to deal with the situation and to cope with it. So we plan to utilize whatever resources the hospital has as well. But um, in the long run, you know, I think... I don't know that it's a tough question and it's something if any of the your listeners have experience with this and have ideas I would love to hear them because it is one of the things that weighs on me the most it's really important to us that um you know that Rosie doesn't think that she's loved any less because of the conditions that she has but also that Gregory doesn't have the experience of being um, less loved or less attended to, uh, or just having the feeling that he's in some way less important to us. So, and they're really close together in age. They're only about 18 months apart. So I think that makes it a little more complicated still, because really in a lot of ways, they're in the same stage of life. We're trying. <laughs> I totally understand that struggle. I mean, uh, having two kids of our own, um, neither of whom requires special medical appointments and attention. It's already a struggle to help. Yeah, you still think about that, even right. parenting two perfectly 
able-bodied kids. Right. How do I make them both know they're equally loved? So I think it's probably just that much harder in your case. So that's a great point, though. If our listeners uh, want to give uh, Muriel uh, their thoughts or just a word of encouragement, you can find her on Twitter at Muriel Margaret. Um, And I'll mention that at the end again as well. But uh, Muriel, I want to go back, if we can, to this point about you wrestling with the uncertainty of her prognosis. And I think it would be, I say this as someone who sometimes struggles with anxiety, it's got to be difficult to, on a day-to-day basis, just not know what's going to happen to her at any point in her life, not know if this, if NF1 will sort of rear its ugly head. And I guess guess I'm wondering, and, and stop me if this is too personal, but how have you in your position, or how do you think someone in your position can make sure that these types of challenges, that type of kind of constant stress strengthens rather than weakens your marriage. I guess that's part one. And then I'm also wondering the same about your faith. Oh boy. Okay. Well, I'll start with the relatively easier part. Um, (laughs) So uh, yes, I mean, there are statistics. It's, it's both intuitive and sort of empirically demonstrated that families that have this kind of stress when it comes to the health of a child, um, you know, they, the, the marriages don't do quite as well in a lot of cases. And that's understandable. Um, I mean, for one thing, we're sort of in, you know, our, our experience has not been as demanding as that of many families of kids with special health needs or other special needs, right? So, you know, it's not like Rosie has been in the hospital. It's not like she has had um, a really severe disability that causes her to need round-the-clock care in the same way that a lot of kids do. Um, so some of that is anticipatory. You know, it's, it's well, what might happen? In our particular case, my husband is a physician, and he actually, um, he's a hematologist and oncologist, so he treats primarily cancer patients. Um, so in a lot of ways, it's not been as hard on him as it has been on me because he's much more comfortable with the idea of medical conditions that have uncertain outcomes. I mean, he deals with it every day, right? There's a patient in his office saying, okay, what does this mean for me? What, you know, what's going to happen to me? And him, he needs to embrace that he just doesn't know and help the patient embrace that there's no way to be sure. And that's something he's, he's experienced a lot more than I have. Um, but I think that sort of speaks to what any challenge in marriage, but maybe especially a challenge involving a child, um, can sort of teach you. I feel like it's an opportunity that can either be embraced or sort of lost and a great deal lost thereby to understand the ways in which um, marriage and partnership do not require two people to experience uh, a difficulty in the same way, right? So I think it would be very stressful on our marriage if I was really bothered by the fact that John was not as bothered by all of this as I am, right? Like, as if that somehow meant he loved her less or he didn't care about her as much. And I have to say, for anyone who's listening who has any sort of any sort of similar situation, um, go to therapy, find a good therapist, get someone to talk to. I am a huge advocate of therapy. We haven't had the chance to do um, therapy together because John works all the time, but um, I have been 
seeing a great therapist myself since sort of pretty early on in this process of having a kid with special needs. And it's been invaluable to me just to have a place to talk to someone who, you know, I don't feel like I'm burdening her because I'm paying her to listen to me. That helps. And it really does. And, um, it, you know, just to have someone to say, this is objectively difficult. It's okay that you're struggling. And to have someone to say, you know, you're doing a lot, you're doing a good job. Here are some strategies maybe for offloading some of your stress here and there. And um, I think the fact that I have been having that support outside of our marriage has really helped. Um, so for people who are both struggling with it, I would highly recommend it for both spouses. I really think for John, um, his his experience just hasn't been, I mean, he's obviously, he loves Rosie and he's sad for her and he worries about her, but not to the same degree that I do. And then in terms of our relationship, just giving each other the space to have our own experiences of it and learning how to be supportive of one another in our particular experiences of it has really actually brought us closer together in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it's scary. I think the knowledge that we both have that we are here for each other and in it for the long haul really helps because I can't imagine, I can't imagine getting through it alone. So it's really, I think in a lot of ways just made us more grateful for one another and given us a chance to practice good communication and patience and generosity with each other. But it is definitely, it's definitely a strain. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, we would have had an easier year of marriage if this hadn't um, if this hadn't happened. But I think we probably wouldn't have grown as much. So in a weird way, you know, I'm grateful for that. The second half of your question is much harder for me to answer. Um, it's you know, it's not been easy. I'm Catholic, as as you guys are, and you know, I have a minor in theology from a very theologically robust Catholic university. I know all of the answers to why suffering exists and why God allows it to exist. And that doesn't really help when it's your own baby, it turns out. And of course, it's difficult too, because I, I really acknowledge, and this is at the front of my mind, really, that this is not anything close to a worst case scenario, right? I mean, we're so, so lucky in so many ways. And we have everything that we need and there are families in war zones right now and there are families fleeing war and there are families you know whose children are in the hospital with cancer and right now we're not in any of those places right and i don't say that to be like oh i pity those people their lives are terrible no no that by the way is not a good thing to hear so if you know someone who's child is having a health struggle try to avoid giving them the impression that you think their life is awful because it doesn't make you feel better yeah that's come up a few times but um sorry anyway um you know my point is it's 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 sort of strange right and a little bit hypocritical that I know of all this other suffering going on in the world and that's not the thing that has brought me to this sort of crossroads in my faith it's you know these in comparison, relatively minor difficulties that my own daughter faces. But I think that is human and I'm okay with being human. Um, It's been hard. I, uh, I don't know. I mean, one thing that I heard several years ago um, in a totally different context when I was having questions about my faith was, you know, just, just keep showing up. You know, it's okay. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to have doubts. It's okay to say, God, I'm not even sure you're there. Maybe you're not even listening to this. And I'm talking to myself in a dark room. Um, but don't change anything about your, 
your practice of your faith. And that really made a difference for me in that time, you know, so I kept going to mass and I kept making time every day to pray in one way or another. And I kept reading my Bible and, um, you know, I got through it. This is a little different. And again, I'm very aware of the fact that we're at a beginning and not any kind of end. Um, but I'm, I'm sort of clinging to that same idea that, you know, what's, what's valuable, um, is less my emotional state and more my presence. Right. I, I'm trying to do that. And then also, um, the idea, and this actually just came to me really recently and has helped me a lot from this Polish priest at my parents' parish, uh, in a little town, an hour and a half north of where we live. We were there a couple of weeks ago for a vacation, which was great. And I had the chance to get to confession, which I hadn't um, done in several months. Two small children, husband who works all the time. I have excuses. Um, <laughs> but but um, I I love confession. I know that's it's a fraught topic for a lot of people, but it's a great thing. It's always been a good, good thing in my life. And um, I was just you know talking with this priest about my my life and these difficulties that I was having and you know questioning to myself does you know does God really love me does God really love my baby and um he in this really good natured and in no it wasn't it's sort of funny because telling the story I worry that it's going to sound insensitive and I didn't experience it that way at all I think he just knew exactly what I needed to hear but he was sort of like well you know like do you remember that thing about how this life isn't isn't all of it like that we're pilgrims on a journey and you know, the, our time on earth inevitably comes to an end and that's not the end of our existence. And I was like, oh yeah, I mean, nope, kind of forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and just for me, I really had been so caught up in, okay, well, you know, is this going to shorten her life? Because statistically a diagnosis of NF1, um, people in that population have, you know, 10 to 15 years shorter life expectancy than the general population. And that doesn't come from sort of all of them dying 10 years early. It's that a lot of the most severe cases, you know, do cause mortality in childhood or, or young adulthood. So that's a really hard thing to look at, you know, is she going to die really young? Um, is she going to be seriously disabled in these other ways? Is she going to be blinded by tumors on her optic nerve? Is she going to have scoliosis and, you know, not be able to walk? All of these things. Um, it, it helped me to sort of remember the eternal perspective and just say, you know, the, 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 her existence doesn't end when her life ends. And, um, you know, God's love for her doesn't end at the end of her life. And it was just helpful to me to sort of think about about that in that way. And you know what's funny is that if anyone else had said that to me, I would have probably just been really irritated. <laughs> it was definitely one of those moments where, um, you know, I was just looking for an answer and I was really uh, being honest and open in a way that I often haven't had the ability to be. And there's a grace there in the sacrament that enabled me to hear what the priest was saying. So I don't recommend going around to your friends. <laughs> and just suggesting that to that them. To them. Yeah. Um, please don't. I think if it had come from, you know, even the dearest of friends or even when one of my sisters or my parents, I wouldn't, I would have really struggled with it and felt like they were, um, being uncompassionate to me. Absolutely. It was, yeah. But in that circumstance, it, it really just gave me a little bit of a, a perspective check that I needed. So I was grateful for it. And um, that's been helping me. But yeah, I, I mean, no, I, 
please keep me in your prayers because it's definitely not something that I have mastered and I'm not sitting over here like, oh yes, well, you know, now is the chance for me to demonstrate my piety and faith. It's more like, oh yeah, well, I'm still a Catholic and I still believe in God and I still believe that God loves me, but like, what the heck, God, why would you let this happen? You know, because it's, it's not a moral evil and it's not the results of a moral evil. And those are easy things for me to understand because they involve free will, you know, it's a purely physical evil and it's not necessary. So it doesn't, I don't know, in a lot of ways, it doesn't make any sense to me, but I'm playing along. I mean, we do pray for you regularly and we really admire the way you have, you have sort of embraced this in embrace this as a challenge to your faith. And I mean, I've said to Sally a lot before, the the thing that I think would be hardest for my faith would be having the health of one of our children in jeopardy. Sort of, yeah, in jeopardy. It'd be so difficult. And I'm really not quite sure how I'd handle it, but I like the things you say about how it's important. It's important to question. It's important to sort of wrestle with God over these things. And it's important to keep going uh, I don't want to say going through the motions because that makes it sound empty. It's not empty. It's more than going through the motions, but right. it's, you know, it's, uh, I guess your heart to, is not quite where you would hope that it would be. Right. You're, I mean, you're going through the, I guess the, the true sense of the word liturgy. Right. right. And, right. and in, in my experience in much smaller crises of life, when I've done those and I've kept those things steady, it has helped me retain a sense of the eternal perspective that you're talking about. So I think those are all really good. Uh, practical points for someone who's in a similar position. Right. Well, and, and on to the point of, of going through the motions, you know, if you think about it like any other relationship, it makes a little bit more sense, right? People are so skeptical often of, of personal faith that they're anxious to grasp it and your reason why it's meaningless. But, you know, if you're having a long day and your children are making you impatient, you're still going to make dinner for them and give them a bath and sing them a song and tuck them into bed. And it doesn't um, make those acts of love any less, you know, intrinsically meaningful to your children just by the fact that, you know, in your head, you're saying like, gosh, it was really nice to be single and I could just read a book and sip a glass of iced tea. Right, you know? so, right. um, relationally, there there's a lot of value to um, sort of putting one foot in front of the other and hoping your heart catches up, I guess. No, definitely. I, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think we're out of time or just about, but we really appreciate you coming on to share all your thoughts about this. And we do really admire your, uh, your job parenting there, you and John both. So extend to him our admiration as well. Yeah. And and thank you for being so open and honest with um, us and with your listen, with our listeners and for just sharing your perspective. I think for anyone who's in any sort of similar situation, they'll be encouraged by what you've said today. I hope so. I mean, I do one thing that I, I know we're out of time, but just, you know, one of the reasons that I try to be so open about it is because I think um, culturally there's, there's a little bit of difficulty with admitting that stuff like this is difficult, either culturally, you know, within the Catholic world saying like, you know, I'm struggling with this or sort of in just the world in general, um, acknowledging your fears about your child's life and, um, their being and not worrying about how other people are going to take it and whether they're going to be like, oh, you have these compared to me or you're such a whiner, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, each person's experiences, unique in the true sense of the word and and valid and i just hope that if other people are struggling they can hear that it's okay and 
know that someone is there to hear them and see them. So none of us are alone. No, certainly not. And uh, speaking of not being alone, if you do want to send Muriel a note or just follow her, you can do that on Twitter or I, I mentioned Twitter already. I did not mention Instagram, but Twitter and Instagram at Muriel Margaret. So uh, look her up, give her a follow. Muriel, thanks again so much and have a great evening. It was great to talk to you guys. Thanks, you too. We are back to wrap things up before we finish episode five of season six. We wanted to wish all of our listeners a very happy 4th of July. It's one of our favorite holidays. And, we and also, we're going to have turkey pesto burgers. Yes. We and are milkshakes. Homemade. going to try some yummy recipes. We hope that you will be too enjoying some delicious recipes. Let us know what you're making and tag us on Instagram at Vernacular Pod or Twitter at Vernacular Pod or Facebook. At facebook.com slash vernacular podcast. You can also email us to let us know what you're eating for the 4th of July or anything, really. (laughs) (laughs) Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. You can also go on our website, vernacularpodcast.com, to check out all of our previous episodes. If you're at work and don't have your phone on you, you want to listen at your desk instead, then go do that and check out all our content on there. Also, as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, please go to our Patreon page, which is brand new. We're really excited about it. Patreon.com slash vernacular. We would love for you to become a patron of Vernacular Podcast. We really would. And if you haven't already, please give us a rating in iTunes. Yes, and a five-star review. Or I guess (laughs) if you were born after April this year, Apple Podcasts, as Sally just informed me it became. Yes, I didn't really realize that, but then I was listening to another podcast that started referring to it as Apple Podcasts. And apparently that is where we are right now. It's a real thing. Apple Podcasts. iTunes Podcast is no more. (laughs) But, yeah. Thanks so much for listening to us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And we will see you again next episode. All right. For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. Feeling better than ever. When I'm by your side.